National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. How tough a Catholic are you? How would you have done with the Catholic Church's practice of fasting if you lived a hundred years ago? Today we discuss Lent and fasting, now and then, with Register staff writer Matthew McDonald. Then we turn to the troubling trend of interest in the occult, and we discuss ways of putting the devil on the run with Register contributor Mary Frances Myler. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register, and this week we're talking about Lent and fasting. Of course, we are past the midpoint of our Lenten fast, and many of us might be feeling a little fatigued by our Lenten experience, uh, but the fasting that most of us do today is really nothing uh, compared to bygone years in Catholic tradition. Uh, we had a conversation recently at an editorial meeting with register staffers about this topic, and Matthew McDonald brought it up, and he joins us today with his insights and research into the history of fasting in the Catholic Church. Matthew McDonald is a staff reporter for the National Catholic Register and the editor of the new Boston Post. He lives in Massachusetts with his, with his wife and large Catholic family. Matthew, welcome back to Register Radio. Thanks, Jeanette. So as I said, Matt, we brought this up, at, at, at uh, you brought this up as a pitch uh, for a story in an editor's meeting, and all of us were kind of like, eh, I don't know, should we really go there? <laughs> um, but, but really, how easy do we have it with our Lenten prescriptions to fast um, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday and to abstain from meat on Fridays of Lent? Like, how does this differ from the past? Catholics in their 60s and older can remember when almost every Friday of the year they were expected to not eat meat. I, I heard stories about this from my mother, for instance, when I was growing up. Yeah. But when I was researching a story about St. Patrick's Day dispensation back into the 19th century, I came across descriptions of far more difficult fast and, and abstinence than I was aware of previously. The, the rules changed over time, through the centuries. So it's hard to point to specific rules for a specific period uh, that would mm -hmm. get tedious. But the general principle is that it was much, much more difficult to be a practicing Catholic 100, 200, 300 years ago than it is today. And just to give one example, there were about 100 days of the year when you're expected either to fast in some fashion or abstain from food. And at various times, you were expected to fast before any feast day, um, any major feast day, any day we would call solemnity, um, but also during Advent and during Lent. Uh, Lent at one point was what today we might call vegan, so not just no meat during Lent, but no animal products, no butter, no no milk, uh, nothing no that eggs. comes from an animal. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, It was a much more intense thing, and at one point... You were expected, if you're a practicing Catholic, not to eat during Lent before 3 p.m. Wow. <laughs> okay. So what we do, you know, our, our Ash Wednesday fast and our Good Friday fast, which are really the true fast days, I mean, that's two smaller meals and, and not to equal the larger meal maybe at the end of the day, right? I mean, that's nothing. 
how did we get here? Do do you have any sense of that yet? I know you're just researching for this story, but do you have a sense of how we got here? Yeah, um, I want to I want to key in on that point and then and go a little bit back. Um, I was interviewing today a man, a, a Jewish man, who said that who has researched um, Catholic practices in the last century, and he said if you compare it to Yom Kippur, it doesn't really seem like fasting at all to have mm-hmm. one meal and then two other times you can eat, and it doesn't quite add up to a full meal. But Catholics of another era would have remembered Good Friday and Ash Wednesday as days to not eat at all. And in fact, you're expected to not eat on Good Friday into Holy Saturday, to the point where, as long as you could make it, that is, um, to the point where Mass actually on Holy Saturday was in the late morning, not in the evening as it is today, um, in part because people were fasting still into Holy Saturday. As to how it changed, the, the fasts in the Middle Ages were very difficult, and particularly difficult for monks who would be working in the fields, mm-hmm. Benedictines, for instance, but also for laborers in general uh, working in the fields. So from time to time, popes would provide either dispensations or loosen the fast or loosen the fast for working men. That, that's actually a phrase that's used in some of the, some of the documents. And um, so this, these fast and, and abstaining requirements were constantly updated, if you will, and the general direction was to make them easier, to the point where in 1966, in the United States, the bishops decided in the United States to take away the requirement that you had to uh, not eat meat on Fridays throughout the year and only make it during Lent and on Good Friday and, of course, Ash Wednesday. Yes, and of course we we are supposed to on on all Fridays of the year recognize the Lord's passion and thus fast from something um, to still mark uh, the importance of Friday in in our experience um, Catholic in our Catholic life. Um, some people, my family, really tries to to fast as a as a general rule on Fridays from meat. Uh, of course, I live in Louisiana, and that's no real fast, um, quite honestly. Uh, so, but but there is that we the, the church did not say no fasting on Fridays anymore or abstaining, let's say, on Fridays. It, it's actually still supposed to be a day that we remember um, Christ's passion and do something extra, um, giving up something extra. Um, for him, uh, in in unity with him, so we've kind of gotten way further than uh, perhaps the uh, the popes even wanted us to get in 1966, right? There's a phrase. That's right. There's a phrase in the 1966 U.S. bishops' document to the effect that the bishops hope that people will continue to abstain from meat on Friday and other penitential practices on Friday of free will, the, the, which was formally required. And uh, it's actually still in canon law in the Universal Church. No meat on Fridays unless local uh, National Bishops' Conference says otherwise, which the U.S. bishops did in 1966. So there is this still emphasis in the Church on penitential practices on Friday. I think that's news to many Catholics. Right, right. And I think that's the importance of us talking about this. Uh, I, I definitely remember... Um, over the years, being in communities, whether it was circles of friends or, or my parents 
were in a charismatic um, group when we were growing up. And I remember uh, much more of a culture of fasting at those times where um, with, with certain communities where we were having bread and water, um, on certain days. I was a teenager at that point. And, and, you know, I would fast with my parents on Fridays and sometimes on Wednesdays on bread and water until dinner. Um, and it was, it was healthy. It was a good practice. It wasn't, um, you know, a terrible thing for me. It was a really good reminder of the spiritual battle we are in and that we are joined to Christ and his suffering through those kind of fastings. Do in your research so far, do you see um, people still clinging to to fasting uh, as a practice, even today, even though it's not our culture nor what we're required to do? I've noticed a number of people that I've come across are trying to keep the Friday abstaining from meat that was the rule in the United States before 1966. They're, they're trying to live it, and I've noticed an interest in various fasting practices, I think that people don't even know they're connected to fasting practices of centuries before in the Church. They just see possibly a need mm-hmm. and a way of, of connecting with God through fasting and through abstaining. So I, I think there is a, a movement among some Catholics, anyway, to, to re-emphasize these things. There's an interesting point to be made here, which is these things are always better if they come from your hat. If they're, if they're done willingly as opposed to a rule. On the other hand, if you take away the rule, are people still going to do the practice? And that's an interesting balance. It's a difficult question, I think. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I mean, when it comes from the heart, it does matter. I mean, that's what I'm saying when I was a, a, a teenager and my family was involved in communities that, that did emphasize this, this role of fasting. And even in college, I had a group, then we, we did things like fasting from our pillows as a group, you know, um, for all of Lent. And, and that was, um, it was hard, but it was helpful. Uh, and you know, the, the fast that you described, like for example, in the middle ages, um, uh, or, or not eating until after three or all of these, I could imagine that um, our life and our work would be quite difficult if we were if we were living that way. I understand some adjustments, right, um, to, to fasting given kind of our, our lifestyles. Uh, but certainly you take away the rule and um, the, uh, there is hardly any formation for the heart to desire the fast, right? I mean, the rule helps to teach. The law helps to teach. Um, you did bring up uh, a group that is doing this um, relatively well and helping men to form their hearts and minds um, and practice uh, to fast, and that's the Exodus groups. That's right. Um, that's a, I don't think I can do it justice off the top of my head, what they do, but it's intense, and it includes kind of a modern form of fasting, if you will, from the Internet or uses of the Internet, unnecessary uses of the Internet, but also other other things that they're abstaining from to try to cleanse themselves from corruption and to try to align themselves more closely to God. And it's the same spirit, even if it's not the same details, it's the same spirit of the medieval Catholic fast, which is intense and meant to bring people closer to God through difficulty and not in spite of them. 
Absolutely, Matt. I, I'm grateful that you've brought this up. I'm very happy you're working on an article of this kind. I think it's important for us to inform inform our minds um, and, and potentially submit very willingly um, uh, to a fast that is maybe more rigorous than we've ever considered before. Uh, and to do it in community, I think, is always a helpful thing. My husband did do the Exodus 90 fast. Um, they fast in between meals um, from junk food and, and that kind of thing, um, from alcohol during, during Lent, and, and, uh, and as you said, from the Internet. And those kind of things are, uh, are basic um, compared to <laughs> uh, bygone years, but it's important for us to reflect on this a little more deeply. So thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? All right. Well, when we come back, register contributor Mary Frances Myler will talk about how to put the devil on the run as occult practices grow. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. For nearly a century, the National Catholic Register has been moving minds, moving hearts, moving souls, and enriching our readers' lives by spreading the truth of the gospel. Today, that tradition continues with award-winning journalism that goes beyond any secular news service while bringing much-needed light and clarity to the issues and events that affect you and your family's future, all with faithful and courageous reporting guided by the teachings of the Catholic Church. It's more important than ever to join Catholics who depend on the register. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. And this segment, we're talking about interest in occultism and related things like uh, tarot cards or astrology that are reportedly at a decades-long high. Uh, recently, Register contributor Mary Frances Myler wrote about this trend for the Register, but more importantly, she wrote about how Catholics can respond in this spiritual battle. Mary Frances is a, a, a postgraduate fellow at the University of Notre Dame's Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. Uh, she's the former editor of Notre Dame's student publication, The Irish Rover, and she's written for The Register for a couple years now. Welcome, Mary Frances. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I gave a, br a brief description of the trends related to the occult, um, but maybe you can fill out that picture a little bit more based on what you wrote. Absolutely. So the occult has kind of started to come more and more into mainstream culture. We've seen this with events like the Grammys, which this year featured a performance by um, singers Sam Smith and Kim Petras mm -hmm. of the song titled Unholy. This entire spectacle was um, designed around satanic imagery, this kind of mockery of evil. Um, and this was broadcasted, you know, into hundreds and millions of 
Americans' homes. But we also see the occult gaining ground, um, you mentioned in very mainstream bookstores, but also on social media. Um, TikTok is this massive um, way for these videos to get disseminated across users. And because of the algorithm on social media, often you don't have to seek out the content that's being presented to you. So the occultism is being presented to people who may not have even set about looking for it. Hmm. Um, so I spoke with um, one woman, Esme Partridge, who has done a lot of research into this. And there's actually an entire subculture on TikTok um, called Witch Talk, where witches or people who are interested in the occult create content. Some of it's kind of lifestyle content, other content that focuses on the actual practices themselves or about their experiences with the occult. Um, that's just entirely a promotion of all of this nonsense. So is it really on the rise or has it just been around and now they're taking it to places like TikTok and, and just the, the availability of it on social media makes it more prevalent? What, did you get any sense of that? Because, I mean, these are age-old practices, right? Um, I mean, Satanism, occult, uh, tarot cards, Ouija boards, all of this has always been around, astrology. But it really does seem to be kind of at a high point. What, what was your sense of why now? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of different ways to address that question. Um, on the one hand, when you walk into Barnes and Noble, as you've mentioned, this material is pretty front and center. Mm -hmm. um, the, the way it's distributed and kind of marketed, it's aimed at young people. It looks really trendy. It's got really clean, modern kind of cover design. Um, it's appealing to a very mainstream audience. Um, and so I think that that you know, would never have been fathomable 10, 20, let alone, you know, 50 or 60 years right. ago. So I think that's a really big indicator. Um, but also in the process of writing this article, I was able to speak with Father Vince Lampert, who is the exorcist for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Um, and he speaks quite publicly about um, his role as an exorcist. And he mentioned something that I thought was really interesting. He said that after COVID, he's noticed that there have been just almost a thousand more inquiries into the services of an exorcist each year. So prior to COVID, he was receiving about 2000 inquiries each year. Mm -hmm. And since 2020, he's received about 3,500. Mm -hmm. um, and these are just the people who are turning to a priest. And so I think that even though that's kind of a small subset um, of numbers, I think it's really indicative that something much bigger is going on in the broader culture. Absolutely. I mean, uh, St. Paul, the apostle, said in his letter to the Ephesians, our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, with the powers and the world rulers of this present darkness, with the evil spirits in the heavens. It's, it is it is a spiritual battle. I think we can't lose sight of that. And, and one place uh, that that has taken over, um, where the devil really has kind of gotten his way, is with um, kind of with social social media, right? I mean, we, we really have, it's hard to get a handle on that and the way that those kind of algorithms work, as you mentioned, I think that was very right. Um, you, you're not looking for this stuff sometimes, but it finds you. 
um, the the register knows, and many many who work in media know that you put something like Satan, the devil, um, a new age, uh, anything like that in a headline, and it's going to get a lot of clicks. It's very sad, um, but but there are legions, you know, uh, out there who are are really, you know, working against us. So. Mary Frances, what I loved about your article is that you didn't want to just stop with this um, dangerous trend. You really wanted to say, what can we as Catholics do about it? And so uh, can you give us first a sense of what Catholic, the Catholic Church teaches about the occult? Absolutely. The Catechism um, explains all of this really simply and really beautifully, and Essentially, the Catechism just says that the occult is a practice that's contrary to the honor, the respect, and the loving fear that we owe to God alone. Because what the occult really is, um, and this became increasingly evident through my conversations with people as I was working on this article, Stephen Adubato, who I spoke with, had a really wonderful way of putting it. He basically said that the occult and witchcraft is always seeking to conform reality to the will of the individual. And that's actually the opposite of what we're supposed to do as Catholics, which is we're supposed to be conforming our will to God's will. So when you dabble in the occult, what you're doing is trying to access power that lies beyond God, beyond what you have been given as a person, your human faculties, um, and trying to manipulate the world in a, a vocation. It's not proper to the vocation um, of the human person. So the catechism rejects all forms of divination, astrology, horoscopes, palm reading, spiritual mediums, all of those um, occult practices. And really, it, it in addition to the practices themselves, I think that the catechism is really also speaking to the attitude um, that as Catholics, again, we're supposed to conform ourselves to Christ and not conform the world to our own individual wills. That is really a beautiful way of putting it. And I never quite, I guess, understood the term divination, right? Quite like that. It's us making ourselves to be like God, to take a power on that is his power, the, you know, like the power to communicate with the dead or something of that kind, um, the power to read uh, the futures um, and, and that kind of thing. So Absolutely. It makes a ton of sense to describe divin, uh, divination in that, in that way. So really, how should Catholics respond to this moment, uh, to the dangers of occult practices? Well, the first thing, um, with every, as with everything, is really to turn to prayer. This is straight from the mouth of you know, an exorcist himself, Father Lampert, was really emphatic when I spoke with him that the best thing that Catholics can do is just to put our sacramental lives in order, to pray, um, to remain close to the Eucharist. And these are things that we should be doing already. Um, but he really emphasized that just bringing ourselves close to Christ, close to his mother, is kind of the heart of how to remain um, faithful ourselves, but also then to convert culture and convert the world. And I think in addition to that, um, on kind of the practical, actionable level, you mentioned it earlier, 
there's a battle going on and it's mm-hmm. a battle that we don't see. And so sometimes it's easy to forget about it or not to pay attention. Um, but there's real evil out there. And we can say that without being kind of pearl clutching Puritans right. about culture. Um, and so with things like TikTok, social media, um, entertainment, especially for parents, just monitoring what children are watching, being careful about the media that we consume just being mindful um, of the powers that are out there and that are working through various cultural mediums to spread lies and confusion. Absolutely. And we have a role to play, especially as media creators, to to be in those places too with good stuff, you know, with, with articles of this kind that maybe will pop up on those algorithms, but actually give more meat um, because people are searching. Uh, they, they are searching for some spiritual depth. One of your, your sources, I can't remember who, said something about um, when somebody dabbles into the occult, they are open to a metaphysical reality, that there is a reality outside of what we can see and that gives us the possibility of conversion. And you spoke to someone who did have such a conversion. How did it happen? Yeah, I spoke with um, Stephen Adubato, who is now Catholic, um, but had been raised in a family where occult practices um, were not taboo, particularly taboo. So he had dabbled um, for a bit himself. And after a couple particularly scary encounters began to read more up about kind of what the occult really is and stopped, stopped dabbling with that. But then later through his life dealt with the effects of that. Um, and as he was preparing to enter the church really endured spiritual warfare. Um, but he, his reflections I thought were especially interesting as someone who had been involved with some of these practices, but then later in life come to the church um, and he, he spoke about the occult in an, an interesting way because he sees all of this as in some ways closer to Catholicism than atheism, you know, where mm-hmm. someone who, who doesn't believe in God also won't really believe in the devil. You know, there isn't anything outside of us. So none of these metaphysical questions matter. Adubato was able to speak to that, I think, in a really interesting way, that there might be a really fertile ground for conversion here. Um, and there are historical examples of that as well, that he was able to point to people in the past um, who felt the spiritual hunger in a culture that was increasingly secular and turned to Satanism, but then through Satanism realized that everything the devil has is really just an inversion and a corruption of what God has created. And so in kind of a strange, you know, miraculous way, they ended up coming to Christ through Satanism. Well, Mary Francis, you have described this well. You've done it well in this show, but you've also done it well in your story, which is titled, How to Put the Devil on the Run as Cultural Interest in the Occult Grows at ncregister.com. Uh, Thank you for joining us today, and I I really do close this show um, appealing to St. Michael to pray for us. St. Michael, who defends us in battle against the wickedness and snares of the devil, pray for us. And I invite our listeners to go. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, to check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For our producer, Michael McCall, and for myself, I pray that God bless you until next week.